in the different Brahma-Vihara practices that we've done, we always start with a benefactor. Tonight I'd like to speak of someone who has been a very great benefactor for us all, and who in some way has been responsible for us all being here together during this time. I'd like to speak of the meaning and the significance of the Buddha in our lives and in these times. We can understand the meaning of the Buddha on several different levels. We can understand the Buddha as a historical person. He was born you know, in the 5th century BC, and he lived um, in a certain town, city of northern India, grew up, all the individual historical circumstances of his life. We can understand the Buddha also as a universal archetype, not just as a particular historical individual, but as an archetype of the fully awakened mind, the potential of that awakening or that enlightenment. And when we understand the Buddha as a human archetype of awakening, we see his life not simply as the strivings and realizations and difficulties of a particular of a particular individual, but we see it, we see all the circumstances of his life as the unfolding of a great mythological journey, a sacred journey. Now mythological here does not mean unreal. Mythological doesn't mean illusory or imaginary. When we think of the Buddha, the Buddha's life as a sacred mythological journey, mythological means that which universalizes the particular, that which universalizes the individual. So the Buddha is a historical person, Buddha as universal archetype of awakening. The third meaning of the Buddha is that of, you could say, ultimate reality. There's a story of uh, one monk in the Buddha's time <coughs> entranced by the physical form, the Buddha's physical form. And so he would always, this monk would always be sitting up front and just gazing at the beauty, the physical beauty. After some time, the Buddha reprimanded him. He said, you could look at this body, this form, for a hundred years and you would not see the Buddha. Those who see, those who understand the Dharma, see the Buddha. And so in this way of understanding, we see that the Buddha is the holy or the fully liberated mind. This has tremendous significance for us, because when we realize this, that those who see the Dharma see the Buddha, 
we realize that Buddha mind, the Buddha, is not outside of ourselves. It is the ultimate nature of our own minds. So where do we look for the Buddha except within ourselves? You know, in coming into the hall, and some of you uh, may bow or pay respects in one way or another, when we bow to the Buddha or pay respects, really it is bowing to love. It's bowing to compassion. It's bowing to wisdom. Because that is the real meaning of Buddha. When we understand the Buddha on all of these levels, historical person, universal archetype, the ultimate realities of experience, we see and we can see his life and the journey of his life revealing the same aspirations that are in our own. And what this does, it helps us put our own life experience, the things that we go through, in a much larger and more profound context. We begin to find a deeper meaning in our own lives, in our own choices, because we're connecting the Buddha's journey with our own journey. Sometimes, you know, when we contemplate the lives or the experiences of some of the world's great explorers in any field, you know, whether it's the explorers uh, of uncharted territories of the earth or explorers in science, in the arts, in, in whatever, in any field. What makes somebody an explorer is that they are at the forward edge of what is known, the forward edge of discovery. Recently read a book about the Lewis and Clark expedition, you know, which was about the first uh, white Americans traveling across the continent to the Pacific. And this came a lot from the journals of Lewis and Clark, and it was extraordinary. They're, you know, crossing thousands of miles of the plains and trying to cross the Rockies in winter, not really knowing where they were going. The hardships that they went through were extraordinary. And it was written in such a, it was written in a way that you really felt you were on the trip with them. Well, we can often appreciate kind of the excitement of a journey of discovery, but we often forget about, you know, the countless difficulties and frustrations and problems and annoyances and inconveniences and everything that is part of that journey. Our practice is just the same way. You know, all the ups and downs that we face in practice and that you've gone through over these months, you know, the countless times of feeling good and then feeling bad or restless or concentrated and etc. 
just this endless cycle of experience, all of that is part of a much bigger unfolding. And we're really exploring, we're staying at the forward edge of the exploration of our minds. This journey of exploration, this journey of awakening, was described in a a very beautiful way by Joseph Campbell, who was a great student and scholar of world myths and cultures. He described this sacred mythological journey in a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he used the Buddha's life as the example of this unfolding journey. And it's so interesting because he interweaves the particular experiences of the Buddha's life with the universal principles that they embody. So the first stage of this journey, this journey of awakening, is called the call to destiny. Call to destiny, the call to awakening. And it happens, or this arises when something happens in our lives that shakes us up. It makes us question our conventional view, our conventional understanding of ourselves. Makes us question our lives and what our lives are about. when we realize that ordinary understanding, the worldly understanding of things, finally doesn't satisfy us. The conventions of the world, this conventional understanding, in some way is contained in one verb. And that is the verb to have. The whole world is understood through this verb. I have possessions. I have a body. I have relationships. I have a mind. And our language just keeps supporting this view that somehow we are living in the reality of having things. Eric Fromm, the famous psychologist, he had a little quip. He said, we live with the understanding, I am what I have. And when we look at our experience and our ordinary way of viewing things, it's true. But there's a problem with this, a very serious problem, and that is that whatever we have, whether it's external things, whether we consider we have the body, have a mind state, have a meditative experience, anything that is held in the world of having will be lost. Whatever we have, we will lose. So there's always, in this world of having, 
always an underlying sense of unease or anxiety or incompleteness. If I am what I have, and everything that we have we'll lose, that's a problem. (coughs) Now, in the early life of the Bodhisattva, (coughs) who's called the Bodhisattva until his enlightenment, (coughs) this world of having was very strong. He had everything. He was born as a prince into a loving, functional family. (laughs) You know, surrounded by sense pleasures. He had all kinds of worldly knowledge and worldly skills. You know, he had a wonderful relationship. It's like he had everything. And in this this, uh, journey that Joseph Campbell describes, the Bodhisattva's father, the king, you know, embodied all of these worldly values of having. And his father wanted the Bodhisattva just to continue in the family tradition, to grow up and keep having things, become king one day. These are the same values that are so prevalent in our own society. Now, how much of our own culture our own understanding is about having. Well, for the Prince Siddhartha, this call to destiny, the call to awakening, arose when he confronted some basic, basic facts, facts of life. He began to question those values deeply when he came face to face with what are called the heavenly messengers. Now, what are these heavenly messengers? They're the realities of disease, of old age, of death, of suffering. said that the Buddha, the Bodhisattva at this time, reflected, why should I, being subject to decay and death, also seek that which is subject to decay and death? It's a very basic question confronting us all. Why should we, being subject to decay and death, also go on seeking endlessly those things which are also going to disappear, to change, to decay and die. Why do we keep staying on this wheel of becoming? It really raises the question for each one of us, just as it did for him, what is the real value in our lives? What is really of value? There are three great contemplations on death which can help awaken in us this call to destiny. You know, when we make that transition from an intellectual appreciation of the Dharma, 
to thinking and even believing or having faith, yes, this is good, to that sense of a compelling spiritual urgency. The first is reflecting on the inevitability of death. It's so amazing how the mind can know and understand, yes, that everybody dies, and yet it's very rare that we actually internalize that and reflect that this will happen to me also. It's always other people who seem to be dying. (laughs) You'd think we'd get it. But it really takes, it, it takes reflecting, it takes really seeing it bringing, it, bringing it back home for each one of us. There's the reflection on the uncertainty of time of death. You know, even if we somehow have made it real for ourselves, it's certainly not tonight, you know, or probably not tomorrow. But really, we don't know. And the third reflection, which awakens the spiritual ardency that supports or helps arouse this call to destiny, is the understanding that at the time of death, it's only our Dharma practice, or we could say, It's only the practice or cultivation of our hearts and minds which will be of any value to us. Anything else we've done in terms of accumulation or accomplishment or gain or fame or whatever at the time of death is meaningless. The only thing that's of value is the level of understanding, of wisdom, of compassion, of love, of equanimity. These are the things which will be of value at the time of death. And so reflecting on this, not as something for somebody else, but for meaning in our own lives, it arouses this ardency. So for the Bodhisattva, these questions aroused in him the energy and effort of countless past lifetimes of practice. What is the nature of birth and death? What is it that's born? What is it that that dies? What are we doing with our lives? What choices are we making? It's the question of what this whole process of life is about. Now, many of us have this passing thought. These questions may arise in our lives, but can so easily, we get so easily re-immersed in the busyness of our lives. What is the nature of birth and death? What is it that is not born and so never dies? 
Now, each one of us here has had some powerful call to awakening. I mean, this stage of the journey has already happened. It's what brings us all here. I was thinking just in thinking of this talk, remembering some experiences uh, from earlier on in my life, which uh, was really about this stage, you know, of waking up to other possibilities. And I was thinking of a time I was a freshman in college, and I was burning, burning with the question of whether God exists, you know, as only a college freshman could be. <laughs> and I remember, at a certain point, it was so compelling and such a burning issue for me, I decided, I gave myself a week to decide. <laughs> okay, in one week, I'm going to know. And then I remember I was after college, I was in the Peace Corps, I was in Thailand. And again, this was just a whole period where this call to destiny, the call to awakening was, was percolating, was bubbling. And I remember being in the Peace Corps in Bangkok, really with a kind of desperation to know who was on the inside of all this. You know, this person going through all the actions and interactions, and yet not having a clue as to really who it was that was doing all this. And that strong urge to find out, to connect. And one time I was, I had been back and to America, and I was going back to India to practice. And the, I think I was in Israel at the time. I stopped, I saw a movie, uh, the name of it was Charlie. I don't know if you remember it. It was based on a book called Flowers for Algernon. It was really an amazingly moving movie for me because it was about somebody who was mentally retarded. And then I forget, they either had medication or some drug. Uh, and he became brilliant, you know, he kind of just went to the other extreme. But then they found out that it was not a lasting remedy. And so the last part of the movie was his again going back, you know, to that uh, level of uh, retardation. But what struck me in the movie was it depi depicting really how cruel people were in relating to him you know, with his mental dullness. People with all kinds of practical jokes. And, and when I saw that movie, and it was right in the beginning of my spiritual practice, it just reflected in myself what I felt was this tremendous absence of metta. And seeing how easily, you know, it was for me to be, if not cruel, at least often indifferent people. And that awakened in me this inspiration to do the metta practice. And when I got to India, that was the first time that I asked my teacher, uh, I wanted to do that. I wanted to learn, okay, how can I open the heart more? So all of these things, 
You know, it's like they wake us up from our usual way of being in the world. This is the call to destiny, the call to awakening. Reflecting, each one of us, you know, on what this call was for us, really can inspire the practice. It reconnects us with the source of inspiration. The second stage of the journey, after the call, call to awakening, call to destiny, it's called the Great Renunciation. In order to awaken to the hidden possibilities of life, to the hidden possibilities of understanding, we need to renounce, we need to be willing to give up our ordinary or conventional way of viewing things. Things are often not what they seem to be. And if we stay just on the surface, we are often living in ignorance, in in illusion. Just one simple example of this is, I think it was last year, you know, through that great Hubble telescope uh, up in the sky, uh, they were were taking pictures of the sky in an area around the uh, Big Dipper. And I don't have the numbers exactly right, but I'll give you some idea. It was in a part of the sky where previously, previous to looking through the telescope, they didn't think anything was there. And then they looked through the telescope, and they found, now here I'm not sure of the exact number, but something like 50 billion galaxies. (laughs) In this part of the sky where they thought nothing was there, all of a sudden 50 billion galaxies appear. You think there's a possibility we're missing something? (coughs) The same thing happens when we turn inward. I'd like to read you something. This is about turning inward just on a physical level, not to speak of the vastness, the domain of consciousness. This was from a book on sort of new discoveries in quantum physics, which don't ask me anything about, but this is the quotation. (laughs) In very round terms, the quantum world operates on a scale as much smaller than a sugar cube as a sugar cube is compared with the entire observable universe. And I said, not understanding any of that, but just the, the, the sugar cube compared to the entire observable universe. Big! <laughs> the quantum level of things is in that same relationship to the... the, So, what is this that we are calling, you know, my body, this thing that we think we are? There are such mysteries and such vastness, which normally we just don't pay attention to. 
<coughs> it's really the renunciation of having, this verb to have, it's the renunciation of that as our deepest value. And we turn our attention much more <coughs> to the nature of the mind itself, to the quality of being, not to what we have. And we see that how we are, <coughs> the quality of our being, has much more to do with our happiness than anything we might have or possess. <coughs> And we begin to see that <clears throat> how we are is up to us. There is actually this potential to open the heart, to awaken the mind. And this renunciation doesn't only happen externally. It's not only about giving up things. We can see it very clearly right in the context of this retreat letting go of discursive thoughts. Do we just sit here and indulge them, or can we, because we're having a nice thought, you know, or we're having a future plan, or we're having something or other, as long as we don't renounce that having, we get lost, we get immersed in that world. Can we actually renounce that having? and simply drop into that place of being where we see all of these things simply arising and passing. It's really renouncing discursive thoughts, renouncing our distractions. So the great renunciation, this is the second stage of the journey. And being on this retreat, this is already a significant level of the experience of renunciation. We've all given up a lot you know, in being here, and it gives us a taste of what this stage of the journey is about. You know, for the Bodhisattva, he left the palace, he left his family, he left his interests, he left the busyness of the world, and he went off and studied with different teachers. He studied all the jhanas, you know, all the levels of absorption. He did six years, as it said, of these very austere ascetic practices, really torturing the body in an attempt to subdue the mind. Six years. You know, this is six weeks or three months in comfortable surroundings. Tremendous power there, tremendous uh, inspiration. But after that time, he saw that wasn't the way, it wasn't the path. So he gave that up, he took some nourishment for the body, and he prepared himself for the third great event in the sacred journey. And that third event is called the Great Struggle. It's the call to destiny, 
the call to awakening, that which awakens in us the aspiration. There's the great renunciation, the great struggle. Joseph Campbell described this in very mythopoetic language, which I'd like to read to you. This is the Bodhisattva under the Bodhi tree, confronting Mara, all the forces of illusion, of ignorance. Try to visualize this you know, as I read it, because the imagery is quite magnificent. The Bodhisattva placed himself with a firm resolve beneath the Bodhi tree, and straightway was approached by Kamamara, the god of desire and death. The dangerous god appeared mounted on an elephant, carrying weapons in his thousand hands. Thousand hands. He was surrounded by his army, which extended 12 leagues before, 12 to the right, 12 to the left, and to the rear, as far as the confines of the world. It was nine leagues high. The protecting deities of the universe took flight. (laughs) But the future Buddha remained unmoved beneath the tree. And then the god assailed him, seeking to break his concentration. Whirlwind, rocks, thunders, and flame, smoking weapons with keen edges, burning coals, hot ashes, boiling mud, blistering sands, and fourfold darkness, Mara hurled against the Bodhisattva. But the missiles were all transformed into celestial flowers and ointments by the power of Gotama's ten perfections. Mara then deployed the force of desire and lust, but the mind of the great being was not distracted. The god finally challenged the Bodhisattva's right to be sitting where he was, and he flung his razor-sharp discus angrily and bid the towering host of the army to let fly at the Bodhisattva with mountain crags. But the future Buddha only moved his hand to touch the ground with his fingertips and thus bid the goddess Earth bear witness to his right to be sitting where he was. The goddess Earth did so with a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand roars, so that the elephant of Mara fell upon its knees in obeisance to the future Buddha. The army was immediately dispersed, and the gods of all the world scattered garlands. Well, every time we sit, it's as if we're sitting under the Bodhi tree. No, we're sitting, confronting faces, facing all the forces of Mara, all the forces of illusion. Now, as we sit with desire and fear and doubt and restlessness and anger and hatred, and boredom. It's the same great struggle. We're sitting under our own Bodhi tree. And what's so important, I think, is to realize that our own struggles have a much greater meaning 
than the immediate experience. Because they're part of this sacred unfolding journey. It's part of a much larger unfolding. Every time we sit and we're facing these forces of our own minds, it's the same situation that the Bodhisattva was in under the Bodhi tree. Thomas Merton wrote something quite uh, apt and beautiful about the nature of this great struggle, this stage of the journey. Merton wrote that prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. Now, if we just substitute there for a moment meditation. Meditation and love are learned in the hour when meditation becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone, when there's no love at all. That's when these things are learned. This is really the meaning of courageous effort. It's that willingness to open to it all, to explore it all. There's no way that our practice is not going to include a meeting of all of these forces that the, Bo- the Bodhisattva met under the tree. Now in Pali, uh, the word virya, which is often translated as effort, I think sometimes that translation leads us to misunderstanding because effort wrongly understood really just involves us or can involve involve us with expectation, with ambition, with tension, maybe with pride or discouragement. If we fit some model that we have of effort or we don't fit it, and when we do, we get proud, when we don't fit it, we get discouraged. You know, a model of how our practice should be. But virya can be understood in a whole different way. And the translation that I like the most is that of a courageous heart. It's that heart, or that courage, that doesn't retreat from difficulties, that doesn't give up in the face of difficulties. Sometimes we need to find balance, but it's that heart which is always seeking to understand. And so at this stage of the journey, the great struggle, the question for us is can we generate this courage, this courageous heart, not from some external model of how we should be, but can we generate this courage from within ourselves, from our own interest, our own willingness, our own passion to understand. It's this courage which allows us and keeps us playing at the edge, that edge of exploration, the edge of discovery, 
often when it's uncomfortable, when we don't want to be there. Because it's when we're at the edge of what is known, that's when new experience, new possibilities open us, open up. And it's different for each one of us. You know, we've spoken a lot at different times of our teacher Deepama, who had extraordinary virya. She was this tiny woman <laughs> with a heart that was huge. So one day, it was, it was one of the last times I saw her, we were walking, we were in Bodhgaya, and it's like she came up to my waist. You know, and so I'm up here, and she's down here. And she kind of turned to me and she said, I think you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean like a two-day retreat. She meant sit down and get up two days later. <laughs> because she herself had often done that. And at one time, she sat for four days in one, in one so a four-day sit. So when she said this to me, sit for two days, I just started laughing because it seemed totally beyond what I could even imagine. You know, and so I just started laughing a little bit and she turned to me and said, don't be lazy. <laughs> well, I never did do that two days, said, but it was just amazing. Just as as an example of even in our minds, even if we just consider the possibility of not being confined by our limitations. So what does courageous effort mean now you know, for you in your practice? In this stage of the great, the great struggle, you know, there's the call to awaken and the call to destiny, which brings us here. There's the great renunciation, giving up our usual way of being and viewing the world. Then the great struggle as we really face ourselves and all the forces of conditioning within us that go so deep. What does this courageous heart mean? You know, for each one of us, and what will it mean when you leave here and out in the world? What choices you know, will we make? The last stage of the sacred journey that we're all on is called the Great Awakening. And for the Buddha, it happened in three different, what are called the watches of the night, three different sections of the night. In the first one, this is the night of his enlightenment, in the first watch of the night, he saw all of his innumerable past lives you know, and just the insubstantiality of them and the endlessness of being born in this situation and growing old and having all kinds of experiences, dying, being reborn, over and over and over again. And just think of how our perspective would change on things if we had that vision. You know, just seeing the endlessness of life and death and rebirth and life and death and rebirth over and over again. 
Well, we can get a taste of that when we look at our past experiences in this life. Even if we don't, can't see past lives, we can see what it's like in this very life, all our past experiences, where are they? You know, endless numbers of them. You see their emptiness, their insubstantiality. There's nothing much there. And so then the question arises, what are we holding on to? More experiences of the same? In the second watch of the night, it said that he penetrated or opened to the understanding of the law of karma. He saw the destiny of beings, that because of certain actions, being, beings being reborn in various happy planes or planes of suffering, And the compassion that arose from seeing that everybody wanted to be happy, and yet out of ignorance was doing the very things that caused suffering, that brought suffering. We can see this so clearly in our own lives. You know, we all want to be happy. And yet in those times of delusion, those times of being asleep, We so often do the very things which bring about suffering. The third watch of the night, we open to the Four Noble Truths. That precise understanding of suffering and how the mind creates it, and freedom, and the way to that freedom. Now, when it's said that at daybreak, just as the morning star appeared, that he attained, he awakened to full enlightenment. There's a very famous quotation of words that he uttered at that time. Imagine, imagine the moment. It must have been an incredible moment. These these were his first words, according to the teachings. I travel through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful is birth again and again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters that is, the defilements have been broken. It's the center pole and the roof. Your ridge pole shattered, the ridge pole of ignorance. Mind has attained to unconditioned freedom. Achieved is the end of craving. Just for a moment. realize or imagine or drop back into that mind of no craving. Achieved is the end of craving. The mind liberated through that. This is actually what we're practicing. We're practicing that same liberation that the Buddha experienced. And he was enlightened. This happened at the age of 35. And he spent time around the Bodhi tree, it said, in various contemplations. 
And then he began, after I think it was seven weeks, six or seven weeks, when he was contemplating uh, some of the books of the Abhidhamma, there's one story, teaching, account of how when he was contemplating this one particular book of the Abhidhamma, book of relations, which is said to be you know, perhaps the most profound or subtle, that this rainbow-colored light was emanating from his body because of the profundity of the understanding. Anyway, after the six or seven weeks, he traveled to Sarnath, which is a place just outside of Benares, where he met up with the five ascetics that he had been doing the ascetic practices with, and he gave the first teaching. I mentioned it earlier in the retreat. It's called, it's the first discourse called Setting the Wheel of the Dharma in Motion. That was his first teaching after his awakening. And in it, he talked about the Four Noble Truths. He talked about selflessness. In it, he laid the foundation for the remaining 45 years of his life, of his teaching. In quite a short time, he had 60 disciples who were fully enlightened, who were arhants. And when he had 60 disciples who had fully realized the Dharma, this is what he said to them. I think this is a very important uh, juncture you know, in the teachings. The Buddha said to these 60 disciples, Go forth, O bhikkhus, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, the benefit, the happiness of people and devas. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent in the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others, you who have done your duty. Now we each start our individual journey, our individual call to awakening, but as the practice unfolds, there is a shift of understanding when we realize that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. Now, and this is the arising of what is called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is that motivation and practice the aspiration that our life and our Dharma journey be for the benefit, for the awakening of all beings. And we start out, or we, we do our practice often out of compassion, compassion for our own suffering, then compassion for the suffering of others. We do our practice out of a feeling of interconnectedness, with other beings. But I think it's also important to be very realistic and down-to-earth about bodhicitta. 
read something the Dalai Lama said. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. That is the Dalai Lama. (laughs) I cannot pretend that I'm really able to practice bodhicitta. What I think is important here is that we can be cultivating the aspiration to have the aspiration of bodhicitta. You know, so even if we feel, yeah, that's a good idea, but that's not me. You know, I'm not really able to practice for the benefit of all. I'm dealing with my knee pain. That's fine. You know, I don't think we should create some kind of idealistic picture of ourselves and our practice, but to understand, to appreciate the beauty, the tremendous beauty, and just to nurture that, just so we're practicing or watering that seed within us. Yes, this is important. You know, let me hold it tenderly. Let me see if I can nurture this seed of bodhicitta within ourselves. It really can become a very great inspiration for our own efforts. In every moment that we free ourselves from the prison of self, you know, from the fetter of attachment and craving, from this feeling of I and mine. In every moment, even if it's just for a moment that we can do this, the very nature of awareness manifests its its very natural love and compassion. That love and compassion, that bodhicitta, can be right there in that moment free of the sense of self. There was a, a wonderful and great teacher in India. It was Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, um, who expressed something that is very basic in many spiritual paths, but he just encapsulated it in one very simple phrase. He said, don't throw anyone out of your heart. And over the years, I've seen this, that this can really become the bottom line reference point for our practice and our lives. Don't throw anyone out of your heart. Because if we hold this as the reference point, then it reflects back to us every time where we do feel separate. Times when we separate out, when we do keep people out. 
It really reveals that to us. It shows us. It illuminates it. So we practice this non-separation in two different ways. One way we practice, as we've been doing, through the cultivation of metta, of compassion, starting with ourselves, benefactor, friend, neutral person, enemy, all beings, don't throw anyone out of your heart. So we just make our heart very big, including everybody. And we do it as a path, as a practice. There's another way we come to this, and that's through the realization of selflessness. Because then we realize there's no one there to keep anybody out. And this, for me, is the great union of love and wisdom. They're really aspects of the same thing. We see that our feelings of metta, of loving-kindness, are the expression of selflessness. And in the genuine experience of emptiness of self, there is automatically metta and compassion because there's no separation. Tulku Urgin, who was a great Tibetan master of this century, just died um, recently. He spoke of this in terms of relative and absolute bodhicitta. And so he said, we practice relative bodhicitta as the compassionate wish to awaken all beings. That we cultivate this compassion for the suffering all beings, to free beings from suffering, ourselves included. And we practice absolute bodhicitta with the wisdom of emptiness. That is, the wisdom of understanding that there are no beings there to awaken. Until Kaurgan said, with these two, with compassion and wisdom, enlightenment is unavoidable. This is really the great perfection of love and wisdom, compassion and wisdom. These are the two great wings of the Dharma. There's the call to destiny, that which awakens us from our sleep of conventional understanding. There's the great renunciation, the willingness to give up our habitual, habituated views of things. There's the great struggle, the connection with that courageous heart that is actually willing to face ourselves, to face the deepest tendencies and conditioning in our mind. And there's the great awakening, the perfection, of wisdom and compassion. I'd like to close with the last words of the Buddha. Just imagine his lifetimes in the cultivation of these qualities of Buddhahood. Forty-five years of teaching. He's about to die. 
these are the last words that he said. So, listen carefully. <laughs> I mean, clearly they were considered words. With the light of perfect wisdom, illuminate the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. Practice with diligence. With the light of perfect wisdom, illuminate the darkness of ignorance. Subject to decay are all conditioned things. Practice with heedfulness. They're really words of great compassion. Let's sit for a few minutes. of our planet our North American continent the New England region and back again into our meditation sanctuary residing in this very balanced, cooled-out heart with its capacity to hold everything all beings know their joys and sorrows according to natural law are just as they are.
You all cooled out? <laughs> I actually feel in conflict. <laughs> um, you know, and it's periodically arises in the practice, and for me it's really uncomfortable, but you know, when you started talking to you about natural law, and I started thinking, well, what is natural law? And, you know, what I started to try to understand and contemplate satanic cult abuse that started coming mm-hmm. to my mind. And just then thinking about violence and not, I mean, I can understand violence in terms of, like, animals killing each other <laughs> to survive, but I think about something like... Really dark abuse, things, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. or... Or war. I don't. It just. I don't. Every. I, I don't understand any of it. Mm. And then I think about the practice, and it starts to feel passive to me. Mm. Are you addressing the issue of choosing your reality? That's said in this last statement. Is that that we choose our reality? Is that what your question is? No. Oh, I'm sorry. That's just feeling more confusing. I'm um, sorry. I think it just. It's sort of just about the practice and action hmm. and non-action hmm. like at one point you know doing that community practice and, and feeling myself wanting to topple over and not accept hmm. and fix and I can understand that moving back mm-hmm. but then when when do we act and hmm. when do we just the near enemy of equanimity is indifferent mm-hmm. which has that quality of passivity and non-responsiveness and so what's important to remember with equanimity is it's not meant to be that this makes us non-active or non-responsive actually if you have a balance of equanimity with these other Brahma Viharas uh, one acts out of a, a non you know one acts without this extreme anger Mm -hmm. or um, indifference, but there's a response that comes out of the heart that's balanced. So Mm -hmm. more to say, but I just wanted to say that Mm -hmm. the near enemy is that Mm -hmm. denial of pain or the non-responsiveness of apathy. Mm -hmm. It's all in that category of Mm -hmm. near enemy. I still, it's like I still feel confused about what natural law, you know. Well, that's the heart. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like karma. Yeah. And it, it's inclusive of everything that we call good or bad, you know, or skillful, unskillful, uh, pleasant, painful. Uh, and it's not possible to understand the workings of karma well. Why some people are abused and others aren't. Why some are the perpetrators and why others, you know, turn into who they are. You know, uh, accept that that is, uh, you know, that's the world we live in. We live in a world with uh, darkness and brightness. And the equanimity is really not about not doing something. It's not about not challenging unskillful behaviors and taking sometimes uh, fiercely compassionate action to, you know, alleviate Mm -hmm. those problems. Mm Uh, this is the realm we live in. We live in a very powerful realm, you know, according to the Buddhist teachings, in that there supposedly are other realms too dark, to without any light at all, to <coughs> develop spiritually. And uh, 
and there are other realms where it's so much light and bliss that there's no motivation. We live in a realm with a pretty equal amount, a powerful amount of darkness and brightness. Uh, and that from a place of balance, we are most effective. Uh, and uh, you know, it's, it's not an uncommon misperception uh, that uh, meditation or Buddhism is a passive practice. And I don't see that at all. I see that we become much more effective because we can act out of compassion and balance and face situations that can be at times overwhelming. Without that kind of balance, we may not be able to look in to face the dark and to act appropriately. with suffering of people, like people in California, over 700 homes burned in the last three days. But I think what I have some difficulty with is the question of whether individuals choose their karma or whether, yes, there are at a certain, there is a certain point where you choose a certain course of action. We all came here today individually with separate karmic patterns, but what unfolded here was greater than the sum of individual parts of individual intentions. Those people like Tom Selleck, who was on Nightline a few nights ago, and he was very, very understanding. He lost part of his ranch. He and other ranchers were going around and helping one another. Um, my question hinges on the question of to what extent have we chosen, and I don't mean this in the abstract, mm. have we chosen a certain reality, where does that impinge on a larger environment field of which we're a part? I think these things need to be teased out a bit, mm -hmm. and things are just the way they are, I find very troublesome. Mm -hmm. I don't, it's a question mark, I don't know right. how to right. feel and think of this. Right. Are you asking if somewhere along the line we choose what our particular life pattern or configuration is going to be like? I anyone can honestly answer yeah. that. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I think, <laughs> I'm not being constructive. Mm -hmm. I'm opening up an open-ended question that I think probably a lot of us wrestle with at different points. To what extent am I the bearer of my karma, and to what extent, as soon as I put, step into a stream to go to the other side, I'm part of a larger environment mm -hmm. for which mm -hmm. I have no control, which I did not intend, mm -hmm. which may be very pleasant, it doesn't mm -hmm. have to be all the Right, right. To, I, what I see is there's two aspects of addressing the karma issue. One is, what we meet are really the results of this mystery, the results of things as they are, meaning, according to the Buddhist teachings, along the line, whoever we were, whenever we were, our actions result in all the experiences of pleasure and pain that we know in, the, in this particular lifetime. Pleasant sight, pleasant sound, unpleasant sight, unpleasant sound, smell, taste, and so forth. To me, the more crucial question is uh, uh, the actual meaning of karma, which is action. Yeah. And that's how we respond to things. You see, and the, the far enemy of equanimity is reactiveness. So if we respond to things reactively, that is an action. It's a karmic action. And reactively, you know, will lead where that leads. It may perpetuate the relationship 
between something unpleasant and aversion or anger, or something very pleasant and attachment and hanging on. If, however, there's equanimity and understanding, yeah, yes, things are as they are. We meet our joys and, and sorrows from this mysterious past called, you know, previous karmic actions. How am I responding to them now? And what is, you know, what is my responsibility to a particular, and my capacity, or my limitations? I guess the other side of that coin, though, is that it's kind of solipsistic to always reflect back on myself. You and I, at this moment, have a shared relationship of maybe one minute's duration. We have entered into a conversation. We both are equally responsible. And this is, I think, Jean may not have been intending this, but the question of active and passive and involvement and social action, which is an extension, gets to the heart of to what extent do we really share a certain reality. I don't 100% have responsibility for what you said and for what I said, but there is, we are changed by the very meeting right. that physicists talk about. Yeah. There are energy right. fields that we can't see. Right, right. I understand. When, okay. when we were in um, Kauai one time doing a retreat with Saida Upandita, first there was a tidal wave warning, and <laughs> we had to all move and evacuate where we were, and then the volcano went off all during this one retreat, and somebody, I was sitting in the retreat, but Steve was helping, and someone asked Saida, uh, whose karma it was that the volcano <laughs> the tidal wave the volcano went off and uh, you wanna Steve was there so you can give us no, was I? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was on the other island. Well then but you were there for the question. Oh. But you have to remind me. Okay, yeah. well then I'll keep going. Um, there's in the Hawaiian Pele oh. system, hmm. uh, there's a living goddess that lives on the island of the big island of Hawaii and Upandita answered that it was this goddess Pele's karma that the volcano went off plus all of the in combination with living in, on the big island's karma yeah. and, and so the Hawaiian people believe that Pele this goddess causes the volcano to go off but I thought it was really interesting that he didn't even blink an eye. He totally acknowledged that Pele was alive and caused, it had a part in the creation of the volcano, but also that everyone there was part of this karma. And I think that that's what you're referring to, that we're all here in this moment. Right. There's a collective karma in that. And, you know, it's, it's even more... It's much... It's so difficult to understand one's own karma, never mind collective karma, but we can understand that it all, there's all cause and effect happening. I'm trying to get away yeah. from the individual sense of burden, which mm-hmm. I think when we start meditating, mm-hmm. we tend to get mm-hmm. very heavy on ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. all I was. Right. Mm-hmm. That's where that, it isn't indifference, indifference or apathy is out of balance, and reactiveness is out of balance. Yeah. Yet another karma question. Um, <laughs> the <coughs> act of intentionality, is that an action in the karma yep. sense? Yes, it is. So it's both setting up karma in that sense 
And do you subscribe, or should I say, does Buddhism have anything to say about this new agey idea that intentionality actually, you know, if you if you wish something, it can make itself. I mean, uh, in fact, the, the, you know, their joys and sorrows depend upon their actions, not upon my wishes. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering to what extent, uh, if I'm an excellent meditator, right. they right. could depend upon my wishes. Right, right. It has, <laughs> it, it definitely has effects. really good. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely has, has effects, and it's not so different than, than your question where you touch one spot, spot of the, uh, the spider's web and it affects every other spot. But we, how are you going to say, you know, which way, once you touch the spider web, how are you going to, you can't really describe how all of the little other parts of the spider web are going to be affected or reverberate. So when I'd ask that question of my teacher, he'd say, yes, certainly it has an effect and it might depend, as you say, on the power or the purity of the metta at the time, the capacity for the persons to, you know, receive that help, and any number of other conditions. But that the real value of it is in purifying and strengthening one's own heart. You know, and still we just, we just put it out unconditionally, irrespective of how much it may help. In some cases, people report and experience tremendous, uh, you know, changes. In, in my own experience, when I feel like I'm up against anger or, you know, ill will, whether it's my own or someone else's, and doing the metta changes the space, changes the relationship that's happening at that moment. Uh, but we can't count on it, you know, is the idea. It's like... Other, and the other part of that is if we get into doing it in order to change, it becomes conditional. Yeah. But there's lots of examples of the Buddha demonstrating his power of metta. You know, raging elephant that his um, um, bad cousin sent down the alley <laughs> to try and kill him. And, you know, his attendant Ananda stood in front and said, you know, I'll protect you, Buddha. And uh, uh, the Buddha says, I think you better get behind Ananda. <laughs> and he just started to radiate these powerful waves of metta that first uh, sobered the elephant who had been made drunk with wine and angered with uh, spears, and then, and then abated his wounds and, and until he came right up to the Buddha and was you know, bowed down in front of him. There's a number of examples like that. And it said that whenever the Buddha wanted to see someone, he'd just start sending out these waves of metta to them, and it would draw them toward him. Uh, I, think, I think every, because it's an act of intentionality, that every little bit that goes out into the universe is a blessing. It's similar, I think, to like when somebody gets sick, and the kind of new agey approach would almost be to kind of say, well, this person, if they just get a better attitude, Somehow, you know, it's sort of blaming the person for getting sick, and that if they just changed their attitude, they would get better, or they die of cancer because they they couldn't change their attitude. I, I think that that's a, a really important thing to look at uh, because there's times when we get sick and we do the best we can to care, but then there is a there is a natural you know other process that happens, and sometimes we die, and that's okay. You know, or we don't get better. You know, we do the best we can to care, uh, but we can't control what happens. 
And often the New Age approach has this element that we can really control what happens. Mm. We can we can affect things. What about euthanasia? What about euthanasia? Yeah. I think the most important thing to remember is that killing is something not to take lightly. You know, I mean, the precept of not killing is all around having that sense that when we take that action, uh, it has a kind of weight. You know, it's a hu- it's a it's a responsibility, uh, and each person has to come to terms with the times in their life when they're faced with decisions that are like that. Sometimes a householder might be faced with a decision to uh, tent their house for termites. Uh, they might be faced with a decision to to kill the fleas on their dog, or an AIDS person might be in so much pain for so many years they might choose to end early you know I, I don't think that anybody can say what is right or wrong in this case I think householders tend to face these questions uh, and I think facing these questions are really important it's like uh, every time a mosquito bites us living in New England in the <laughs> summer that there is that question of, well, do I restrain myself or do I kill? And the Buddha taught that the Buddha taught that the more we kill, the more insensitive we get to killing, and that the less we kill, the the more sensitive we get to killing. Well, what is what is your, what's your relationship with intention? The intention is to try to protect life. Talking about killing, I had this question uh, about the Theravada tradition. Mm-hmm. Because my tradition is where it's strictly vegetarian. It says what? It's strictly vegetarian. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that by not eating meat, I'm somehow contributing to preservation of some life mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. And I do believe that if Buddhists as a whole, if they were to give serious thought to not eating meat, mm-hmm. there is a possibility, a very real possibility that very large animal life can be set. Mm-hmm. But in the countries of Southeast Asia, Buddhism basically doesn't pay any attention to eating meat. And even though when the monks in the Theravada tradition when they eat meat, even though it's not direct killing, but if they were to refuse eating meat, mm-hmm. it could have a large impact on the social consciousness. So, could you talk about it? Uh, what's, what's your sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's mm-hmm. something that has always puzzled me. Mm-hmm. About, about killing. <laughs> I think for one thing is that it, uh, it, it began at a time when there was no choices in the time of the Buddha when many of the nuns and monks went out and uh, if they if they didn't get you know when they were just receiving food if if they went to places that only served meat they didn't eat that's all they would have gotten uh, so I think that's one 
one aspect of it. And then that the, the Buddha did clearly teach on the level of intentionality, and there was a whole list of, of rules around that. If, uh, for example, you couldn't keep going to the same place, or you couldn't go to a place that uh, knowingly you, you were aware that people were killing an animal for that particular nun or monk, uh, and so forth. And I think that in terms of the Southeast Asian or the Theravadan traditions, that, that habit is just, is just carried through. Uh, I think today it's, it's more a, que- a question of where there may be a movement toward, since there isn't this need anymore. You know, in most places, vegetarian food is, uh, is available and healthy and provides the, uh, the nutriments that people need, that it would be a question of, of slowly changing a social consciousness, because still there are many people who they're used to eating meat of some sort. Uh, and I, I don't see it could happen you know, radically and quickly, but I think globally we're becoming more aware of that and, uh, and finding that people can very well easily live on uh, other kinds of proteins and so forth. And it might be something that slowly evolves. Uh, that's that's all I can really speak for as a in in, in terms of speaking for the Theravadan tradition in that way. I, I don't see. Um, I see that it really comes down to people deciding for themselves that this is a better course of action to take. You know, in terms of all of us individuals. Uh, if, as what, if that's what suits us, because I mean, still uh, in America, many people still, if not eat meat, eat some proteins like fish and uh, other sources that way, uh, and that's a kind of a personal, kind of a personal preference. I, I also would say, I don't think we can measure these things as right and wrong. You know, uh, ultimately, uh, more a. Uh, perhaps a growing sensitivity into what people need. Yeah. My, my whole question is about cherishing life. This is a whole subject in itself. I mean, it is a, the whole well, I just, I always, it, I understand it, and yet it confuses me because I also know that the trees and plants are like as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I recognize the difference because I'm closer to the animal, so I understand killing from that perspective. But what you know, what's it? I mean, what is the difference? If you, you I mean, if you're eating something that's green and healthy, yeah. and you Carrot, carrots don't scream as loud as cows. Not as loud. There's many, many. There's many. This is sort of a it's like a, it would be a great uh, day for the study center to talk about it because it, it's a whole vast subject in itself, you know, the whole way in which we relate to nourishment and protecting life. I mean, I hopefully in this culture we learn to eat less of the, you know, the bulky proteins. But I think that our culture doesn't need as much as we tend to use. That would be a good step in itself. <laughs> yeah, yes, but it's interesting in the place, you know, where I work, you know, with, with like 
maybe a 150, 175 employees, there's three vegetarians, mm -hmm. you know, and so that's the kind of Well, that's, that's why I would say that emphasis needs to be on less, you know, an alternative so that people just start to get that they can maybe eat meat once a week or three times a week and not seven. I mean, there's all the ways in which... It's also important to be able to be, to be able to hold both sides, though, because it's not difficult to get into a kind of fundamentalist attitude, too, that, that's just another way of splitting off, of making an us and them. The San Kun people of, uh, uh, of South Africa, who we know as the, uh, the Bushmen, they've been, you know, their, uh, their ancestor, ancestry goes back at least 40,000 known years, and they really, they're known for their cherishing of life. And uh, they would never destroy anything randomly. Uh, they're also hunters. And they, uh, they have a, a whole ritual around taking uh, an animal for food. Yes, it's here as well. And they do so very carefully and with respect and with, a, you know, honor and with apologies and, and all of that. And to... Uh, um, to feel it, you know, like it makes my my skin, you know, shiver, because uh, they are very they have this depth of appreciation for life. So I think it's careful. I mean, I think we need to be careful not to uh, be divisive in that way. Some of the mm. people who eat meat can be much more grateful than the people who <laughs> gorge on vegetarian. I mean, it's hard to sometimes balance it all. Know, that's what you're trying to say. Yeah. Just lately, I've been seeing this idea of meat eating and vegetarianism more in the um, idea of um, universal law of cause and effect mm -hmm. of, of human beings and the world's karma mm -hmm. and the animal's karma, mm -hmm. and we can't understand it. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, our own ancestors, you know, for for the past four million years are, uh, in large part, we're meat-eaters. Yeah. yeah. I made me think about, um, you know, when my teachers have said that, you know, as a parent, it's inevitable that you're going to cause some harm to your children as a human being. Mm -hmm. And then you said the job is to cause as little harm. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, being alive, that's the case. I mean, we mm -hmm. are going to cause some harm. Mm -hmm. You know, we breathe in things, we mm -hmm. kill things when we breathe mm -hmm. in. We step on things. Right. I mean, so I guess right. you know it's inevitable. Right. Right. So I guess we could try to do as little harm. Mm -hmm. And everybody is in a different place as far as mm -hmm. that, what they're capable of doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's true. In terms of doing vegetarianism in an absolute way. I I not to eat meat, but I also try to remember that Adolf Hitler was a vegetarian and the Dalai Lama isn't. you to keep the practice of this alive in whatever way you can. Have you have a booklet on this? Or? I mean, simple things, not the mm -hmm. 
There's one Buddhist publication, Society Book on Metta, by a monk named Ubuddha Rakita. But it's just on Metta, not on all, not on Brahma. There are other ones on all the other Brahma Viharas. Yeah, if you look on the list. Yeah. Can I ask one more question? Yeah. Yeah, you're all You talk about the, and it's all four, but we see retreats that are meta retreats, right. but we don't see retreats for the others. Is there a reason? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends who's teaching them. We te- When we teach a meta retreat, we tend to introduce all four. Oh, well, we don't. We, we don't call it a meta retreat still. The, yeah. thing, the yeah. thing that's interesting is if we call something Brahma Vihara, often people don't come. It can be so creatively used in our lives. And once it becomes a habit, it, it's just, it's more available. Like, metta is not something you do as a meditation, but also as uh, speech, as ways of cultivating thought, and as, our, as a physical action as well. So, but practicing every day, from the first time that I did a metta, a Brahma Vihara retreat, uh, you know, I'd started to incorporate it into my regular mindfulness practice. And I felt, you know, I just did it pretty... Uh, religiously for a year. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.